0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Bible Center. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is an unbelievable holiday weekend crowd. Thank you for being here this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philemon. Philemon, it's a little book right after Titus, just before Hebrews, or you're always welcome to follow along on the screen. Let me invite you to stand with me, and we'll read Philemon verses 21 through 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Once upon a time, a man had 17 camels. Unfortunately, the man passed away, and when his sons read the last will and testament, they learned of their inheritance. They learned that the oldest son was destined to receive half the camels, The middle son was destined to receive a third of the camels, and the youngest son was destined to receive a ninth of the camels. Well, when they started doing their math, they began to argue, and they realized that 17 camels can't be divided by two, three, or nine. They'd almost got into a fistfight, and so they decided to see the elder woman of the village As they approached her, they explained the situation and and their confusion. And she said, Well, I'm not great with math, but I own one camel, and I'm happy to donate it to this cause. And so they thought, Well, this poor dear lady, she doesn't know much about anything, but thankfully she decided to give us her camel. So they went back home and they did the math again. And now they had 18 camels. They divided it by two, and so the older son got half. Uh, The middle son got his third, so he got six, and the youngest son got a ninth, and he got two. When they added it all up, they realized nine plus six plus two equals 17. So they had one camel left over, and they decided to give it back to the poor dear old lady who knew nothing about math. (laughs) She might not have known much about math, but she knew a lot about resolving conflict. You see, really the key to resolving conflict is like finding the 18th camel. What is our common ground and what can we do to make peace out of a very sticky situation? You know, I'm convinced God is doing great things with Bible Center. And our vision is to be a church that Charleston can't live without. But more than any other ministry initiative, more than any other building we'll ever build or program we'll ever start, if we as a church can wrap our minds around and get a handle on conflict management, we will rock this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? How can all of us grow in this area? Well, feel free to follow along in your outline or on the app. We're going to look at three principles The Apostle Paul gives us rooted in the gospel. Number one, how can we be a peacemaker? Well, we can be positive. Number one, be positive. If you're new to this series, we've been talking about a man by the name of Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy businessman in the city of Colossae, the area we now know as Turkey. And Philemon, at some point in time, had gone on a business trip to Ephesus and heard the apostle Paul preach the gospel. He became a believer, a follower in Jesus Christ, and came back to his hometown, Colossae. He opened his home to uh, be the place where the church in that city would meet, so he must have had a somewhat of a larger home. A young pastor by the name of Epaphras was the teaching pastor uh, in the church, And in the home, not only were there Christians, but unfortunately there were also slaves. Like most Roman nobility of that time, Philemon owned slaves. And one of them was a man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus stole from his master and he ran away from home. We believe he probably ran to Rome where Paul was in prison or in house arrest. And while he was in Rome, he met the apostle Paul. As providence would have it, God brought him across Paul's path. He heard the same gospel that his master Philemon had heard, and Onesimus, too, became a Christian. Now, let's put ourselves in the Apostle Paul's shoes for just a moment. Let's say we are Paul, and we know the law. The law says we have to send Onesimus back home to Philemon. But like Paul, we don't like this institution of slavery. We don't like all that it represents. It's counter-gospel. It's counter-Jesus. What would we do? Well, the Apostle Paul does the unthinkable. He sends Onesimus back to Philemon, but he says, receive him not as a slave, but as a brother. And the words that Paul writes in this letter laid the foundation For the abolition of slavery, not only in England, but eventually in the United States. Paul is very positive. Look at his outlook with me in verse 21. He finishes up the entire letter that we've gone through the last three weeks, and he says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul was confident. He was sure, he was hopeful that Philemon would do the right thing, releasing and returning Onesimus uh, to his rightful place. Now, history tells us that more, than, more much more happened after this. Uh, Most scholars believe that Onesimus became the bishop or the senior pastor of the church at Ephesus. We can't be 100% for sure, but from what we know from second century church history, there was a guy by the name of Ignatius who wrote a letter about 50 years after this to the pastor or the bishop of Ephesus, whose name was Onesimus, and as he writes a letter, he quotes several times from Paul's letter to Philemon as if to insinuate, yeah, I'm writing to you, the same guy the apostle Paul wrote to. So it's kind of neat to imagine that maybe this slave not only was restored to a status of a brother, but also became the pastor of one of the largest churches in the region. I'm curious, when we think about Paul being positive, what about you? Are you the type of person that sees the glass half full or the glass half empty? If we were to ask your family, does your family think of you as the person who sees the glass half full or half empty? The optimist says the glass is always half full. The pessimist says the glass is always half empty. And while they're arguing, the pragmatist takes the glass and drinks it. The project manager says the glass is twice as big as it needs to be. The cynic wonders who drank the other half. The school teacher says it's not about whether the glass is half empty or half full. It's whether there's something in the glass at all to begin with. The worrier frets that the remaining half will evaporate by morning. The physicist says the glass is not empty at all. It's half filled with water and it's half filled with air. Therefore, it is fully whole. Maybe that's some of you. The psychiatrist asked, is the half empty, half full glass really that important? Let's set this issue aside for a moment and talk about what's really bothering you. The police officer asks or says, I'll ask the questions, thank you. The IT support person says, "If have you tried emptying the glass and then refilling it? <laughs> the CPA asks, why bother setting such an arbitrary glass ceiling? We need more revenue streams as well as to monetize the difference in perception." The nurse says, we are monitoring your fluids, so you really need to drink all of it, no matter how much is in the glass. The worn-out mother of a persistently demanding three-year-old says, sweetheart, it's whatever you want it to be. Please just leave mommy alone and give me five minutes of peace and quiet. We all have different personalities. Maybe you fell somewhere between IT specialist and pessimist or optimist, whatever that looks like for you. I think we all could feel God's invitation to be more faith filled, to be more positive, to be more hopeful. I love what Paul writes about love in 1 Corinthians 13 8. He says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What would happen if you were more positive, say, at work? What would happen? You know, whenever there's a new policy or a new structure or, or some new procedure that comes down, are you the person that always screams the sky is falling or are you the person that's known for being somewhat faithful, faith-filled, or hopeful, at least as much as you can be in the situ- situation? What about at home? Are you the person known for being positive, faith-filled, hopeful, or always being negative? We've got vacation coming. You know, and some of us dads, let's throw dads under the bus for a moment. It's not Father's Day yet. Um, Some of us dads, we go on vacation. If you're like me, what we do is we see the entire time the checkbook, right? Like here we are at Disney, standing on the surface of the sun. I'm spending my children's college education to stand here and sweat why are we doing this just to watch Winnie the Pooh fall over a cliff in a log? Why are we here? Or whatever it is for you. Let's feel God's invitation to be more positive, faith-filled, hopeful, believing that God can do miracles in our conflicts. Where there's life, there's hope. Number two, Paul gives us another principle in this passage, to be peacemakers, not only to be positive, but number two, to be present. Number two, to be present. In verse 22. I love this. At the same time, he writes, prepare a guest room for me. I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Number two, we feel God's invitation to be present. Paul tells Philemon that he wants to visit. This isn't the case of you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. But but instead, Paul wants to visit as a friend. Now, Paul knew how to play his apostle card. There were two times, one in 1 Corinthians, one in 2 Corinthians, when Paul says, I am going to visit you, and it's not going to be pretty. And Paul could do that. As an apostle, a direct descendant, given the authority from Jesus. But that's not what he does here. Instead, he says, Philemon, prepare a guest room for me. I'm coming to your house. I want to see you. I want an update on how this conflict is shaping up and playing out. Maybe you have a guest room in your home. Think about what would you do to your guest room to prepare it for the Apostle Paul? It's kind of a neat, neat thought. Uh, Maybe, you know, get the Christmas decorations out of there. You know, sweep the floor, maybe change the sheet. Whatever it is you would do, he writes to Philemon and says, I'm coming, please prepare a guest room for me. What is Paul doing here? Well, he's running to the conflict, not away from the conflict. And there's two principles that stand out. They're not in your notes, but if you're taking notes, you might write these down. No conflict is ever resolved without presence. No conflict is ever resolved without presence. In other words, in order for conflict to be resolved, somebody's got to go to somebody else. It's never resolved without presence. Number two, love always takes the initiative. Love always takes the initiative. And I realize in both of those principles, there's a lot of leeway. When do you know w- when's the right time to go to somebody? Uh, those of us, uh, have, some of us have gone to people way too soon, and we've, wanted, we've loved the thought of resolution more than we love the person. And I recognize there's a time to speak, Ecclesiastes says, and there's a time for silence. But there's also uh, this, this invitation from the Lord for us to press in. He says, if you come and you bring your gift to the altar, Jesus says, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the altar and go and try to be reconciled to your brother. Maybe we can use email to set up the meeting. Maybe we can use text to set up the meeting. Maybe even a phone call to set up the meeting. But there's no substitute for physical presence. When we sit with somebody else and we hear their perspective, even if their perspective is wrong, but usually the truth lies somewhere between two extremes. You know, some of our ancient cultures understood this far more than we do, probably because they didn't have access to computers. Uh, But there are even some tribal cultures today that still understand this principle The San people of the Kalahari Desert are masters at conflict resolution. I read this week that they are master hunters and they use poison darts, skilled hunters. But they have a procedure. Two things happen when there's conflict in the village. One, they all come to the bonfire. Everybody comes to the campfire. That's where conflict is resolved. Number two, somebody is always assigned by the elders to hide the poison darts. Love that. Like People are the same everywhere. They'll sit around the campfire for as long as it takes, days if necessary, trying to find a resolution. There are instances, according to the article, where uh, there's someone who will not quit their position or maybe everybody else says, you know, this is the right position, this is the wrong position. And someone persists in their anger or their stubbornness. And so there are times where they'll send them away to relatives for a short season. But according to the article I read, they always invite them back for another attempt at conflict resolution. Man, what a great, beautiful picture of the gospel and of the church. With whom is God inviting you to be present? Who does the Lord want you to call this week to email this week or text this week and ask if you can have coffee or if you can come over for a visit or if, if you can meet at a restaurant and just talk. Who is the Lord inviting you to do that with? I recognize there are boundaries that have to be set. This week, many of you have, or this month, you all have emailed and given examples and stories. My heart is moved by the way, many of you still have been hurt deeply in life and in family. And I recognize it's not just a 35-minute sermon that's going to fix everything. Sometimes there are boundaries. I have folks in my family who, that Sarah and I have to uh, not let in certain parts of our house when they come and visit for fear of them stealing out of our medicine cabinets or, or some other part of the house. I recognize boundaries are needed. Some of you are CEOs and and leaders of companies, and sometimes you have to make hard decisions. I recognize all that. But may the Lord help us to be people of presence and people who run to conflict, admitting when we don't do everything right, because we don't, none of us do. And if Bible Center Church this year never started one new program, never started one new initiative, never entered into any new new plan or procedure, if we this year just ran after the people with whom we have conflict, what could God do in this city and in this church? Let's be positive, let's be present. And number three, let's be personal. Number three, let's be personal. We see it in verses 23 and 24. Paul models the gospel. He models what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. Verse 23, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. He's going to list five names of friends. Paphros is the first. And he says, and so do Mark and Aristarchus. If some of you have children and name your son Aristarchus, I will buy you a steak dinner. (laughs) Uh, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Paul shows his heart for teamwork. There's no one man band. He, He often recognized people by name because people, they weren't just a crowd to him. They were individuals. Pastor Bill Tansey did this beautifully the other night at the eighth grade graduation. My daughter graduated from Bible Center School, and he gave the commencement speech, and it was beautiful. He had previously got all their names and went down through the meaning of all their names and addressed his speech right to them about the meaning of their name. It was beautiful. One boy, his name was Colin, and we all learned, and I looked it up afterwards just to be sure the name Colin means playful puppy. And so I felt bad for that eighth grader for the rest of his existence will be known as the playful puppy. But it was a beautiful speech. What's Paul doing? He's doing what Bill did. He, he's personalizing. He, he's, he's showing that forgiveness is important because there's a bigger picture at stake. It would be like a mom and a dad saying, you know what, we've really got to work on our issues. We've got to resolve our conflict, if nothing else, for the sake of the kids, It would be like two church members saying, we've got to resolve our conflict, if if nothing else, for the sake of the church. It it would be like uh, two people at work saying, we've got to resolve our conflict, even two managers or two executive leaders, we've got to resolve our conflict for the unity of our organization. And so Paul writes to Philemon and says, you've got to resolve your conflict with Onesimus because there's more people involved than just the two of you. And this week, studying through this passage, it, it, you can almost, almost see Paul's mind. You can almost see his motives for writing. And he lists these, these five people on purpose. Epaphras. If you're taking notes, Epaphras was the founder of the church. With Philemon, who gave up his home for the church, Epaphras was the young pastor who founded. He was known for preaching and praying and guarding sound doctrine. The second person he lists in verse 24 is is Mark. Now, who is Mark? Well, he's the author of the Gospel of Mark, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark and Luke are both mentioned here. If you're taking notes, Mark was his other name, his full name was John Mark. He was the cousin of Barnabas. And in the book of Acts, early in Paul's ministry, something happened between Paul and John Mark. Do you remember that? They had a falling out. Nobody knows what the falling out was over, but whatever it was, it was so sharp that Paul insisted that John Mark not go on his next missionary journey. Now, I'm glad the Bible is vague, and I think God was vague on purpose. God never tells us who was right and who was wrong. Maybe John Mark was a a lousy protege. I mean, maybe John Mark was lazy, Maybe John Mark wasn't faithful to his studies. Maybe he didn't get it, show up on time or get out of bed on time. Who knows? You can just picture the Apostle Paul saying, hey, look, this guy's not faithful. He's not coming with me. But who's to say it wasn't the other way, right? Who's to say Paul wasn't a jerk sometimes? Is it possible for someone to be used of God and still be a jerk sometimes? Please don't elbow the person beside you, yeah. Yes, it's possible. Maybe the Apostle Paul had had crossed the line and, and he wasn't gracious or wasn't merciful or he wasn't allowing John Mark time to develop. We don't know. All we know is two good men who both wrote books from the Bible couldn't stand to minister together. And the book of Acts says the dissension was so great between Barnabas and Paul that they went two separate directions. Now, was God in charge of all that? Sure, God was in charge of it. You know, because of their dissension, the gospel went twice as far. The gospel went with Barnabas, who took John Mark, and then went with Paul and Silas. But here at the end of Paul's ministry, notice what's happening. It's not just a name, but but he writes Philemon and says, Philemon, oh yeah, I, I'm, I've made up with Mark. What's he saying? I've taken my own advice. I've swallowed my own pills. I'm taking my own medicine. If I can get right with John Mark, you can receive Onesimus. It's beautiful. Aristarchus. Uh, Aristarchus is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. He was like the sidekick of Paul, but he seemed to always be with Paul when bad things happened. When there were riots, when they were getting beat, or they were getting shipwrecked. And so Aristarchus is kind of like Tonto with the Lone Ranger. Every time something went wrong like Dr. Watson or or Robin or Chewbacca with Han Solo when they're being blasted out of the sky. Aristarchus is that sidekick who is there through thick and thin. And then Demas, Paul writes later, we find that Demas, after this letter was written, forsook Paul having loved this present world. The last person he mentions is Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke, of course, wrote the Gospel of Luke and was with Paul to the very end what's he doing? He's showing that conflict always affects real people. This week, I watched a TED Talk by William Ury. William Ury said this, he says, I call this perspective the mechanism of community engagement, the third side of an argument. We tend to see conflict as two-sided, labor versus management, husband versus wife, or Republicans versus Democrats. And what we frequently fail to see is there's always a third side. It's us, the surrounding community, friends, allies, family members, and neighbors. So as we finish up this month-long series, where do we get the power? Where do we get the strength to live this out? You know, I can stand before you and say, be a positive person. Be present. Be personal. Now let's pray and go to lunch and beat the Methodist to the buffet bar. I could say that. But none of us have the strength in and of ourselves to do this. It would be like me standing up reading the Ten Commandments to you today and saying, okay, here's the Ten Commandments, now go out and live it. And and some of us could go for five minutes and live it, or a half an hour, or maybe a day, but none of us could do it on our own strength. So where does the strength come from? It comes in the very last verse, verse 25. He, He gives this beautiful promise and this beautiful command to Philemon, Where is he going to get the grace, the strength for this? It's verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It comes from the grace of Christ. There's an old proverb that says some conflicts are so difficult they can only be healed with a story. Some conflicts are so difficult they can only be healed with a story. It's like the wise elderly gentleman who sits down between two offended parties and he's the arbiter and he hears both cases and instead of telling this person what they should do and this person what they should do, he just tells a story. Maybe you had a grandpa like that. Or maybe you are that way. And the story that brings all of this together is the story of grace. Grace. It's the story of the gospel. The good news that the living God who demands perfection of all humankind sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to live a sinless life to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment that we rightfully deserve. To rise again, to ascend back into heaven, and to grant forgiveness and righteousness and his spirit and eternal life at the moment anyone repents and believes. We've used it before and we'll use it again a million times in my next 28 and a half years here. But it's the story of those four movements of the gospel. Creation, God made it all. Sin, we broke it all. The third movement is salvation. Jesus came to save it all. And fourth and lastly is restoration. Jesus will make it all new again. So right now we're living in this time period of, yes, it's after sin, but we also have Jesus who has died on the cross for our sins. And one day, he's going to make all things new. And so when we see our hurt and our conflict and our pain, and and am I 50-50 right? Is it 90-10? Is it all her fault or is it all his fault? When we look at it in the context of story and we see what God has forgiven us, how in the world can we at least not try to make peace with someone else? Does it always work out? No. But do you feel God's invitation to try? I do. I told Pastor Lee this this week, I said, Lee, I wish that I had preached through the book of Philemon my very first month at Bible Center Church. Because not only has it been transformative for some of you, and you've emailed me your stories, but it continues to be transformative for me. I love to hold a grudge. A little warning, right? Can I give you that warning? i got a great memory most of the time, right? As long as I've eaten dinner, I can remember. Brain's working well, I can remember. I can remember what you did to bless me 20 years ago. Oh man, I can remember. Oh, thank you so much. But I can also remember what, nobody in here I'm thinking of, did to to mess me over. And man, that memory just comes back and the juices and the adrenaline flows and I think, yeah, sure, I'll smile at you, but I remember what you did. And when I get the chance, it's over. Now maybe nobody else in here is like me and maybe I just lost my job, but I'm just telling you that's (laughs) who I am. But what If grace began to grow us and mature us, will we have to take it on the chin more often? You better believe it. But I'm thinking of someone who took it not on the chin, but who took it in his hands and in his feet. And if Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How in this world can we not become more a people of grace what's the main encouragement today it's simply this the main point is simply this dear lord let's pray this in our hearts together help me be a peacemaker not a peace taker help me be a peacemaker and not a peace taker in a moment, because we finished up a couple minutes early, I'm gonna ask us to take a couple minutes. And would you, with me, pray this prayer in your own words? And let's ask God to change our church by first changing our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this sense, some would call it revival, that's taking place in the hearts of many people in our church. Father, I ask for wisdom as we lead through the next three decades that you would help us to be masters of peacemaking. Lord, you know what that looks like. We have the best student ministry, the best children's ministry. You're doing wonders in care and widow care and music and our worship services. But Lord, you inspired your servant Paul to write, though we speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it's become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Lord, this is a small town, small state. And there is many relationships that need to be mended in this city. And Lord, help us to humble ourselves when we've done wrong or done the right thing in a wrong way. Help us to be the first to take the initiative out of love. With heads bowed and eyes closed... I want to begin by asking you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you need that grace, this is a great weekend to become a child of the King. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'd love to invite you right there where you sit. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And right there where you are, you can become a Christian. In your own words, in your own way, let me invite you to pray this with me in your heart. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've broken your law. Sometimes I've wanted my own way. But I believe you love me. I believe you save sinners. I ask you now to save me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. I believe he rose from the grave. I want him to be my master and Lord. Right there where you sit, if you prayed that prayer, with heads bowed and eyes closed, let me encourage you after the service. I'll be out in the gathering space by the doors. We'll have a pastor here at the front. There's folks in the living room. Just come by one of us and say, "Hey, I want you to know I prayed that prayer. We are not embarrass you. We don't even stop you. We just want to get your information or ask you to reach out to us this week. We can follow up together and help you in the journey of the Christian life. Christians, how about we take a minute and pray that prayer? Dear Lord, make me a peacemaker, not a taker And we'll conclude with a song in a moment.